0: This is a podcast from the
1: Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au.
2: Welcome to the first panel of the 2022 Caldor Centre Conference. And thank you, Jane, for that excellent opening address, which provides the ideal framework and background. Um, for the present panel discussion on the lasting effects of, the, of COVID-19 on refugee protection. I'm Daniel gesselbash the Deputy Director of the Caldor Centre, and I'll be the Chair for, for this session. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Bedigal people that are the traditional custodians of the land for which I join you today at UNSW, and I'd like to pay my respects to their Elders, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island- Islanders who are joining us today. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the everyday lives of all of us around the world, but its impact on refugees and people seeking asylum has been particularly pronounced. In today's panel, we will examine the way this has unfolded, highlighting key protection concerns, assessing the response of governments and UNHCR, and in line with the conference theme of turning points, reflecting on the lasting legacy of the pandemic on refugee protection, both for better and worse. We're honored to have three distinguished speakers joining me on the panel today to unpack these issues. Adrian Edwards, UNHCR's representative for Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, and the Pacific, joining us from Canberra. Pascal Zagashani, the executive director of Action pour le Progrès, a refugee-led initiative in Kakuma refugee camp, joining us from Pretoria. And Roshni Shankar, the founder and executive director of the Migration Asylum Project, India's first and only dedicated law center for forced migration and displacement joining us from new delhi you can find more detailed biograph- biographies for the speakers in the conference program and please use the q and a function to submit questions you may have for the panel panelists at any point in today's discussion and i'll, I'll do my best uh, to, to integrate them uh, into what will be a, a casual and free forming uh, free flowing discussion but before we turn to the panellists, uh, we're fortunate to have some pre-recorded remarks from Gillian Triggs, Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at UNHCR and former member of the Caldor Centre Advisory Board. These remarks will provide a snapshot of the additional protection challenges brought by the pandemic from a global perspective and the key lessons learned from the recent UNHCR evaluation of the global response to refugees during the pandemic.
3: It's a great pleasure for me to join the Calder Centers conference for 2022, uh, and the panel on COVID-19's lasting effects on refugee protection. This is a very critical question, and one that we, of course, have been asking ourselves at the UN Refugee Agency. You've asked me uh, very briefly to to set the scene, uh, and you've asked some interesting questions. um, What protection challenges have been brought as a consequence of the of the pandemic from a global perspective, which, of course, uh, the UN Refugee Agency must have. What lessons have we learned from our responses and the responses globally through our evaluations? And perhaps the most interesting question is, what has the pandemic uh, led uh, as a sort of turning point for refugee protection from our, our point of view? Well, perhaps I could begin by saying that when news of the of the pandemic started to filter through from early January, but most most strongly by, by late February, March. Our first response at the UN Refugee Agency was one of deep concern because we thought that the refugee camps and settlements and overcrowded urban environments in which of course most refugees are today would be particularly uh, vulnerable to this uh, COVID virus, and and that we would see uh, horrific numbers of deaths. Um, Fortunately, that proved not to be the case, and is another area, in fact, for for research. Why were these uh, camps uh, so protected? And perhaps an obvious answer is that they're very isolated. And then in some cases, our colleagues uh, locked themselves in with with refugee groups. In others, they simply had no access. And and some lessons are to be learned from that. but our immediate uh, the concern lay with, with uh, access to asylum and all of the restrictions that were imposed on the most vulnerable people in the world, uh, being largely people who've been displaced either within their own countries or across borders looking for protection. Uh, and we were particularly concerned about women and children, the elderly and the disabled. Um, and to understand the uh, consequences both directly for refugees and displaced people um, and the longer term consequences, we embarked on, a, on an evaluation, which we do for most of our, of our work at one stage or another. When this time we did it with OECD um, and, the, and a range of states, of course, our member states and with various stakeholders, including the uh, voice of refugee groups themselves. Well, what I'd like to do is to explain firstly, what were the impacts that we found in the evaluation of, of COVID-19 on, on refugees. And secondly, then, uh, to look at what lessons we've learned and how that's impacting our future work. Well, firstly, and, and very obviously, I'm sure to all of you, uh, was the impact on border closures, um, on, the, on the core uh, right of access to territory for refugees to make a claim to asylum. And at the height of the emergency, 100 countries closed their borders and made restricted access to asylum seekers or denied access to asylum seekers at all. Um, And that's been very worrying. Over the last year or so, those restrictions have slowly been lifted, but there remain 20 countries that deny access at all to asylum uh, for people uh, fleeing conflict. And they will continue to do so on the basis of health precautions and and measures that were imposed some two and a half years ago. Um, This hasn't, of course, affected refugees uh, seeking international protection. Uh, The numbers have been going up dramatically, but it has forced them to resort to very dangerous and sometimes life-threatening border crossings. For we do have to understand the context in which we are reviewing the impact of COVID generally, because over the period of COVID, the numbers of people displaced internally or or internationally has reached now 103 million people. Um, And over the last year, the UN Refugee Agency has declared 45 new emergencies in 29 countries. Well, that gives you some idea of the unprecedented challenges to uh, the plight of displaced people. Um, Challenges, of course, to UNHCR and its protection activities Um, but also posed very real problems for controlling COVID because uh, conflict remains the overwhelming driver for displacement and in the context of movement uh, and vulnerability uh, the risk of COVID infection rises. So those were our concerns. There were more particular concerns in addition to uh, risks to the normative uh, foundation of refugee law being the a- right of access to asylum, and of course uh, the-, the non-derogable prohibition on uh, on refoulement. But there were others that were more consequential, uh, and one, of course, was the lockdown um, uh, for refugee children and their families. Um, we know that something like 1.5 billion uh, students were unable to attend school. Um, but a key point that, that we need to understand is that these kinds of restrictions tend to affect the most vulnerable people. And among those vulnerable people, and perhaps even predominantly among them, uh, are those people displaced, but particularly refugee uh, uh, children. And we've, we know that, that the numbers of refugee children able to return to school um, are nowhere near as, as, as significant as those for other children in more settled environments. And we also know that boys have tended to go back to school as refugees, as distinct from from girls. So we are very, very fearful that there's a generation of of young refugee children who will have uh, missed out on their opportunity for education. They've also faced prolonged and increased separation from their families uh, due to disrupted family tracing and to uh, disruptions to reunification services. I've said that refugee children are very vulnerable and, and along with their families, those families are very likely to lose their jobs. They tend to be in the informal economy and they're the first to go when there is any threat to that economy. They tend to work in service industries, uh, particularly um, restaurants, uh, clubs, entertainment, uh, hotels. All of these, of course, closed down throughout the world uh, for a very long time and inevitably affected uh, uh, displaced people. Um, also, of course, refugee families were often unable to pay their rent because they'd lost their jobs and were faced for eviction. So it's one one event after another. We also saw, and many of you will be aware of this, in a very short space of time after the first lockdowns were announced, we saw a rapid spike in gender based violence, mainly domestic violence, um, which proved to be a, a striking feature uh, throughout the period of, of the COVID pandemic. Uh, a a very, very considerable rise in in detrimental effects to to young girls, partly, of course, because of school closures, Um, and they were subject, we know, from the evidence to forced marriage, uh, to early pregnancies, uh, to their sexual exploitation of girls, and, of course, also girls and boys uh, being forced into domestic labor. We also saw a high level of stigmatization of people on the move, generally, Uh, Xenophobia uh, arising, of course, from misinformation. But we also saw that many people displaced, particularly by conflict, as most are, will not have documentation. Um, Of course, we know the plight of people who are stateless, uh, but there are many uh, displaced people who perhaps technically are not stateless, but nonetheless don't have documentation. And without that documentation, they're quite unable to access the health services that are so critical to, to giving them the treatment they need, but also to, to, to stemming the, the contagion of the, of the disease. So the other, and perhaps the, the final critical point uh, 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 with regard to refugees in the COVID context is that we started to understand at UNHCR the enormous importance of inclusion of refugees We have long argued for this as probably the most durable solution because resettlement is so difficult, uh, uh, places are so few, and voluntary repatriation in prolonged crises is increasingly difficult. But in the context of COVID, it was especially important that refugees should have access to national vaccination plans. And while most countries did uh, agree to ensure that refugees were treated in the same way as far as vaccination plans are concerned it was noticeable uh, that vaccinations were not available in, for example, Africa or parts of North Central America. Um, uh, Contrary, of course, to the principle of the Global Compact on Refugees, the equitable sharing of responsibilities, uh, and that would include inclusion of refugees in health systems. Um, One lesson we learned uh, from uh, from the COVID, and one that is, I think, going to inform much of our work in the future uh, is the uh, need to work at the local level with local communities? Uh, we, under the Global Compact, of course, are trying to ensure a much greater uh, hold of society approach to uh, to refugees. And in in a in a curious way, uh, a silver lining to COVID was that we really learned uh, the importance of working with those community groups and indeed getting more funding directly to local groups, faith based groups. Um, uh, community groups, schools, teachers, uh, civil servants, all contributing in one way or another to, uh, to managing the, the COVID crisis. And that, I think, will take us into the future. Um, another uh, benefit of, uh, or, or lesson learned, is perhaps a better way of putting it, of COVID was the uh, use of digital, uh, uh, digital processing. Um, some states uh, did adapt quite quickly despite closed borders would allow refugees to make their claims um, using uh, digital mechanisms uh, with documentation and interviews in some cases were conducted remotely. Um, that meant that those countries of good faith could continue their asylum processing even during the worst phases of the of the pandemic but what we are learning from that is just how important digitalization is going to be in the future and how important it will continue to be on remote uh, service delivery and we see these as as enormously um, uh, important for uh, people in rural areas uh, for people who can be isolated for one reason or another particularly older women Uh, and uh, and people with disabilities. Um, We also saw a a very important uh, engagement of a range of protection actors, again consistently with the Global Compact on Refugees. We had much more to do with mayors and local government, local authorities, um, other NGO partners um, internationally and domestic but also the rise of refugee-led organisations stepping up to protect refugees in the context of COVID. And we'll see all of these as having um, a long-term impact on the work that we do at UNHCR. Um, I had rather imagined that by the time I'd be talking about our evaluation of the COVID uh, uh, responses, I will be talking about the long-term social and economic impacts on displaced people generally. But I think you will all be aware that Uh, COVID has been followed rapidly by the war in Ukraine, uh, the loss of uh, income uh, or loss of um, donations to uh, conflict and refugee situations in other parts of the world, which has proved to be an enormous uh, challenge for UNHCR. Uh, Well-funded though we are for the Ukraine war uh, with 14 million displaced people, seven and a half million at least having left the country. Uh, We, nonetheless, have significant deficits in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, for the Sahel, Mozambique, Ethiopia, where we've seen a recent peace agreement brings us some hope. Um, uh, The the financial support that's necessary for the million refugees in Cox's Bazaar, uh, the need to assist those um, 3.6 or 7 million people hosted by Turkey from Syria, and and one could go on. So we have very significant financial consequences. uh, And, uh, of course, dealing with the longer social and economic impacts of COVID is is simply one more uh, multiplier effect uh, in leading to the despair of so many many displaced people. Um, We we certainly hope that the evaluation will be useful for, uh, for future emergency natural resource uh, uh related um conflicts and displacements now increasingly driven by by climate as, you, as you'll all be aware um, we we hope that as we know more about necessary responses and the, the lessons we've learned with digital uh, and local government and local community support uh, we can continue to understand and be aware of the long-term social and economic impacts along with dealing with these rising numbers of conflicts. Um, uh, Some perhaps the more traditional conflicts that we've seen in Ukraine but others um, uh, non-government armed groups in in many parts of, of of, uh, of Africa and of course the crime gangs and the violence that is spread through those gangs in, in North Central America. So there are many problems, but we hope that the evaluation process um, is one that's useful in thinking not only about COVID impacts, but about the multiplier its uh, effect it's having on the on the lives of so many uh, displaced people. So thank you very much, and I'll be very interested to learn uh, how these discussion, discussions go at the at the Calder Center.
2: Gillian Triggs' uh, remarks to provide an excellent overview of the global impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on refugee protection. But I'd like to turn to the panel now for some more detailed ref- reflections on the impacts in specific countries and regions. Uh, Pascal, if we can begin with you. Uh, you work at, uh, and live in Kakuma Camp in Kenya, one of the largest refugee settlements in the world. Uh, what were the main ways in which COVID-19 affected communities there? Uh,
0: thank you so much, Daniel, for the introduction, as uh, well for Calder for organizing this conference. Uh, I will be speaking from my experience and also my observation being in Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. uh, During COVID-19, I would like the audience to understand that refugees in the camp uh, largely rely on assistance, aid assistance. Now, during COVID-19, humanitarian workers could not access the camp because they also had to protect themselves from contracting nineteen. And then we refugees, depending on aid, could not access them. So we could not access many uh, NGOs or INGOs, uh, apart from accessing the medical care in the camp, uh, as well as WFP food assistance. The other um, also saw their businesses being closed. uh, So they also lost jobs in that process. Uh, In terms of resettlement, cases were not processed. So there was no resettlement by then. And this also affected refugees mentally because they saw their cases pending, not knowing when this is going to resume. Um, On the side of UNHCR, we understand because uh, the RSDs were not taking place. The refugee status determination process were not taking place because uh, there's no way refugees could be in touch or in contact with UNHCR staff anybody doing the RSD. So this remained uh, pending and it also affected how sooner refugees can get their status. Um, the also refugees stayed for a long time in the reception center before being relocated in different communities in the camp. So they find like in the reception that is connected with the rest of the refugees in their communities because they stayed for a long time. Uh, because there were no services by then. There was also a uh, restriction in accessing the camp. Well, refugees or asylum seekers who are coming could not access the camp due to border closure. Um, that also affected those who wanted to get uh, a refugee status or uh, be accepted in the refugee camp. Uh, we also saw disruption in education, it closed completely, uh, though some, some, like, let's say other people were learning in Kenya online, but refugees could not, because of also internet problem and other stuff. So we saw the education was disrupted and nothing could happen by then. Uh, There was also, we also experienced a lot of increase in mental uh, health cases and also suicide cases in the camp uh, because of life becoming very difficult we saw that there was that increase in mental health problem. And and also earlier marriage was also happening in in, in the camp. Though it also happened largely in Kenya because the education was also closed, no educational activities happening. But now when you look at the refugees themselves, it was also at a high rate that refugees uh, were, our, our adolescent ladies were also getting married earlier. age. Uh, also refugees could not travel, that was also another effect that I can mention, we, we, we the, the movement was restricted, we had to stay in the camp, we could not go outside. Of the camp. So that is that is what I can mention from my experience, from my observation on a camp uh, level. Thank you over to Daniel.
2: Thank you so much Pascal. Uh, uh, Roshni, uh, what were the key Protection issues raised in India, both for asylum seekers and refugees, as well as for the grassroots organizations like your own that assist them.
1: Thank you, Daniel, uh, for inviting me to join this panel. Um, much like what uh, Pascal described, I think the situation was very similar in India. Uh, but before I go into the details, I just want to give a little bit of context. Um, one being that India does not recognize refugees legally, so they've always remained in a legal limbo and we've had an ad hoc system of uh, providing uh, you know, assistance and protection and documentation to them. Um, so any ad hoc system is obviously impacted when there is a public health crisis, and that's exactly what happened in India. Um, a couple of other factors which we need to take into account, one is that refugees are primary in urban settlements in India. In fact, India hosts one of the largest urban uh, refugee urban settlements. Uh, and COVID was devastating in these areas. And I think the world saw what happened in India during the second wave. Uh, um, it was complete devastation. Uh, and refugees were obviously not an exception, but the situation was bad for everybody, uh, including the internal migrants who were stranded because of the long lockdowns, and I think India had one of the longest and strictest lockdowns uh, at that time. And it affected livelihoods, it affected access to protection services, and a, a lot of what Pascal described is true for us as well. Um, I think if I could just highlight a couple of uh, issues that uh, you know were probably unique to India. Um, well, one is of course UNHCR was wasn't unable to function, and so were many of the service providers. Um, we tried to move to remote uh, services. UNHCR introduced uh, remote RSD but there were by the time we got used to the system i think we'd lost about like maybe 18 months or so till you know we could uh, start doing this on a regular basis so that was a long period of time when refugees were pretty much left to fend for themselves uh, a number of refugees lost their lives during covid but i we don't have data on that because since they're not recognized uh, in india they're not part of the national death data um, because they did not have access to asylum systems and documentation, they were in turn further marginalized from mainstream systems. So even when the government came up with schemes uh, for migrant workers uh, you know, to provide access to essential services, refugees could not access them. Uh, they couldn't access basic services like hospitals and education because they couldn't renew their UCC, uh, their under-consideration certificate, or they couldn't renew their cards, um, or they couldn't register themselves as asylum seekers. Um, and one of the issues with uh, uh, which Ms. Trix highlighted was sexual and gender-based violence. And we saw a huge, huge spike in sexual and gender-based violence uh, nationally, uh, both amongst host communities and refugee communities. The difference being that refugee communities couldn't access any law enforcement authorities because, again, they don't have an identity and they're worried about exposure. Uh, courts went virtual, so that, again, took protection systems further away from them. Uh, So these were like a series of protection challenges that we faced and I think what became painfully clear to us is how dependent they were on these systems and when you have these lockdowns and you have settlements which are completely like inaccessible, uh, I think we realize the importance of how we need to work with the communities directly at the grassroots, as opposed to just expanding our own services and, you know, um, our own support structures. So I'll stop there for now.
2: Thanks so much, Rashni. Um, Adrian, uh, what was the impact of the pandemic on refugees and access to asylum in Australia and the Pacific?
4: Thank you, Daniel. Hello, everyone. Uh, I think I can answer that by saying uh, something which we've all seen, that here in this particular region, the most dramatic thing was really the immediate loss of access to territory for people seeking asylum. Um, And that was simply as a result of the closed border policies that we know about, because particular circumstances in the Pacific, of Australia, and where we are, uh, I think had a very, very pronounced effect on that. And as you know, a, a refugee who is turned away or turned back uh, or unable to get to a point of physical safety and where the protections that a refugee needs, um, uh, th- that is someone for whom the risks and dangers are going to start to multiply very fast. So as you heard from Julian Triggs uh, a little while ago, You can close borders to protect the health of a population. But unless you have a plan during a pandemic for people who need refugee protection, you also inevitably end up with people being excluded and unprotected, which, of course, is both an individual risk. And if you think about that in the context of a global uh, pandemic, it's also a global public health uh, uh, risk. And that was a situation we saw in this region. Another uh, impact I want to flag has been on health, Uh, being forcibly displaced and losing the basic human rights protections that we all take for granted in our own everyday lives is, as we all know, it's a journey into great vulnerability and loss for any human being. Um, I was in uh, Port Moresby in PNG just uh, a matter of days ago when I was seeing the continuing effects there of of the pandemic on uh, refugees there. And you know these are anyway, uh, in the case of the Papuan refugees from uh, in a very, very forgotten populations. So all these issues, um, physical and mental health issues, psychological vulnerabilities, these became particularly pronounced. Um, and we saw during the pandemic, it was actually hard to get these health conditions addressed in many cases. And this led in some circumstances to uh, emergency resettlement needs arising. And which brings me to the third point, and the last one I'll make now, which is the impact of the pandemic on resettlement here in Australia and in New Zealand. As you may know, uh, resettlement in uh, arrivals in both countries uh, plunged dramatically. And the impact was not just on the arrival of people who were already accepted to come here, but also on officials. Uh, being able to continue their work from the field uh, and undertake the necessary travel to do so. And I'm talking there about officials from New Zealand Australia who do that work. Much of the work in the pipelines literally came to a standstill. Uh, Australia brought home its staff. Uh, New Zealand teams were unable uh, to go to the field at all. So uh, really, the system uh, left lots of people waiting for a resettlement, and those are people in really urgent need, without any real prospect of, of movement and that of course is an increased risk.
2: Thank you so much Adrian. I'd like to move the discussion, discussion on now to uh, looking at specific developments that may be significant for the future of refugee protection. Pascal, I've got a, a, a two-part question for you. Um, the first is, you know, we heard about the uh, importance of that uh, role of refugee, lead, refugee-led organizations, both in Jane's remarks and Julian Trigg's r- remarks. Um, so g- given your role leading as such an organization, what do you think we can learn from the pandemic in terms of the role of refugee led organizations in responding to their needs of the communities? And uh, we had a question from the audience that you can, might be able to build into that, which was um, what could be done to pre- prepare refugees and refugee camps for future pandemics and or disasters?
0: Thank you again, Daniel, for the question. Um, I I would like the audience to understand that during the pandemic, refugee-led organizations were available and accessible by refugees because these organizations are operating within the camp and are being led by refugees themselves. So they were available. They were accessible. That's one. Uh, Second, um, refugee-led organizations by then started reaching out to their networks to get support. And they also provided support to the refugee communities. Uh, the support was not limited to uh, giving PPEs to the refugee communities, uh, because by then everybody has to wear a mask everywhere. You have to have a mask. So refugees uh, produced a lot of uh, masks for their communities. And they also provided food items because uh, by then, uh, we had shortages of getting foods from other counties within the country. So they were also getting food to distribute to their own community members, uh, and also refugee-led organizations. They were also providing information because they are there now. They are providing information to the to the to their refugee fellows, and also uh, in the process of now recovering from the COVID-19 a refugee-led organization provided uh, support to those women, uh, adolescent mothers, uh, in terms of like income generating activities. There are so many centers where now refugees have constructed for them to bring their children and they can go in class and learn, which is not happening in so many human NGOs and NGOs, but refugees had to bring in that aspect so that these teenage mothers can learn and also generate some income to support themselves. So basically that is what we have been doing. And also we've come in strongly as refugee-led organizations to provide um, a counseling support and also advocate for refugees by then. Over to you, Daniel.
2: Thank you, Pascal. Um, maybe if you could briefly touch on that, the, the audience question about um, what could be done to prepare refugees in refugee camps for future pandemics.
0: Um, I think what should be done by then is also to, because refugee-led organizations have not been acknowledged, I mean, recognized and supported by the local leaders. And if at the international level, refugee leaders can also get funding, can also get support, more partnerships, then refugees will be ready to support and also prepare their own communities. Thank you so much, Pascal. Uh, can you tell us
2: about the work that uh, the Migrant, Migration Asylum Project has been doing to tre- strengthen community-led advocacy for refugee protection in the wake of the pandemic?
1: Thank you, Daniel. Um, I think during the last two years, we've seen a, like, a significant spike in protection challenges faced by refugees, and that is because we saw the Afghan crisis unfold, um, and then the Myanmar coup happened. And so suddenly we have, we're have dealing with like two crisis simultaneously in the South Asian and the Central Asian region. Um, and during this time we also have the pandemic going on where you know they don't have access to systems which they were earlier which they could earlier access. So you have virtual courts, you have suddenly you have mobile payments, you have uh, you know NGOs offering services uh, through digital mediums. But very, very little work um, was being done to empower refugees to be able to engage with these systems. So it's great that you have digital uh, you know, platforms all of a sudden and so many cropped up in the last two, three years. But unless that development is holistic and we also train refugees to use these systems and empower them and create digital infrastructures for them, um, it's, it's redundant, like they, they cannot access any of it. So then what's the point? Um, and it's important to uh, to remember that in a country like India, where you don't have a legal identity, you can't even get a SIM card to get a mobile phone. So uh, you know, so you are never going to have access to these systems without even a mobile phone. Um, and at that time, I think our focus as a law center, we looked at um, access to justice and rule of law, and that is something which we are comfortable addressing. We're familiar with these systems, um, and we started mapping all. The various legal pathways and avenues that were available to communities at the grassroots. Uh, so these are a lot of them are informal mediation systems or, or uh, you know, protection groups or healthcare service providers who are registered with the state, but they're not institutional uh, you know, setups. So you have your local community paralegals who are providing legal empowerment to their community. You have health workers who are talking about re- uh, reproductive rights and creating awareness about vaccinations. Um, And so these are the pathways that we decided to engage with because none of the institutional or like the larger organizations were able to access these communities. And like Pascal said, refugee led organizations or initiatives or community led organizations were still accessible to the community. And often they're more relatable to them and they are more comfortable reaching out to them for uh, for support and services. Um, So we launched a program specifically for uh, the communities as a whole. So uh, we decided to de-label refugees as refugees and started looking at them as people who are living in the community, who are residents and who are facing protection challenges. So women were just women who are facing sexual and gender-based violence. And it didn't matter whether you were a migrant woman or you're a refugee woman, or you're a woman from uh, South India or Central India, or whatever, because the criminal justice system is supposed to be accessible to everybody. So we use that to create programs which were for the whole community. We worked with focal points from different communities, talked to them about refugees, uh, talked to refugees about migrant work- uh, you know, migrant workers. And, the f- and then we realized that there were lots of synergies in terms of what they needed. They lacked legal identity. They lacked access to documentation. Um, and this created a lot of solidarity within communities. Uh, and without that solidarity, you cannot access these grass- uh, grassroots pathways and you can't strengthen them either. Um, in addition to that, we created digital tools um, for the communities as a whole. We created uh, an app which was specific for women so they could approach helpline centers and they could um, you know, find their nearest lawyer, nearest health uh, healthcare provider um, through like a touch of a button. And we had to design it specifically so that it can work for somebody who doesn't have a smartphone. Um, or has very, very limited knowledge of using digital tools. So these were simplified, they had audio-video visuals, um, and we spent a considerable amount of time training refugees to use this. Um, And they were also integrally involved in the development stage to tell us what will work and what will not work. For example, the women told us that there's one phone, uh, you know, which is shared by the family. So if you're living with your perpetrator, you're not going to be able to use that phone easily. So you need to build in a camouflage feature within the phone so that they can quickly exit the app if, you know, somebody, uh, you know, um, uh, stands near them. Uh, So these were inputs that the refugees gave themselves and we've developed the app. It's still in a pilot stage. We're rolling it out. We have over 2,000 users right now. Um, in addition to that, we work with state-registered like health workers and uh, paralegal volunteers who they themselves not refugees but um, are now more aware of the community. They don't look at them as this, you know, the other community who only the UN comes to protect, uh, but look at them as um, as as somebody who lives in the community and has the same problems.
2: Thanks so much, Roshni. I think um, along with all the challenges, uh, it, it, it seems there was opportunities for innovation um, in the midst of the pandemic. It's great to hear about the innovative service of the remodels you've been working on. Adrian, if I can turn to you now. We've heard both from Jane and in Gillian's remarks and some of your earlier remarks uh, about the restrictive turn uh, that we've seen during the pandemic um, undermining uh, access to asylum and and refugee rights. And uh, many of those measures still remain in place today and uh, I'd like your reflections on what you think the, the implications of this will be for the future of refugee protection?
4: Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Um, a concern for UNHCR since the very start of the pandemic is that bad habits get baked in uh, so that when the pandemic goes, they don't. Um, now, keep in mind that we're all about three years, clo- approaching three years, I think, since the COVID uh, pandemic began. And of course, we all know that there are still countries with border restrictions in place. So point one, I think, is that refugee protection is not back to normal. Pandemics do make it easy for countries to exclude and restrict and to take a control orientation. And those effects can last uh, long beyond the most acute phases. Uh, And uh, UNHCR itself has made a point also repeatedly over the course of the pandemic uh, that defending borders to protect public health and meeting the fundamental standards of refugee uh, protection uh, are both perfectly possible. They're not mutually incompatible. It's the exact opposite. One does not have to cancel the other out. Uh, In this region, uh, Australia and New Zealand, of course, I think context is worth keeping in mind too. Uh, There's always been restrictive measures here in terms of access to territory, because fundamentally, that's what visa regimes are about. Uh, And Australia's visa regime is universal, meaning that if you're a, a, what's called a non-citizen here, then you must have a visa. And that system, of course, is buttressed by other measures, uh, such as the airline liaison officer network, which uh, prevents boarding of a plane, for example, if an officer doubts um, that you're entering for um, uh, genuine reasons. Um, and then there's the Pacific itself, which, uh, in which many countries are not signatories to the Refugee Convention. Uh, they lack domestic legislation. And, and ensuring access to territory there um, in a region with huge ocean distances uh, as well, I, I think, is is part of the context here because the, it's a region, of course, that's historically had quite low numbers um, of refugees. Um, in short, I, I think what I'm saying is that... Uh, it, uh, ensuring that those in need of protection are being accommodated was already challenging in these contexts pre-pandemic. Um, two other things uh, I, I want to say more broadly, and it's been mentioned by, by Jane and, and Gillian and, and others in this conversation before, but for refugees and other forcibly displaced populations who typically are already the most vulnerable in society, the ricocheting socioeconomic impacts of lost livelihoods coupled with restricted access to basic services, have pushed millions into poverty. And this has resulted in negative coping mechanisms, um, uh, reduced spending on food, increased debts, uh, selling assets, Uh, families like those in PNG I mentioned earlier, who are surviving on just one meal a day today, and children outside of school. So these effects uh, are are pernicious, they're devastating, and um, they're not short-term either. If you lose your access to education or to health, um, those are things that can have impacts for years. If you resort to child marriages that Pascal mentioned and uh, and other things, those things go on for years. Um, And uh, um, I think if I can come back to your question too about the impact of refugees in the Pacific, Um, and just to talk a little bit more um, about the impact that we're seeing on the refugee populations uh, here. Uh, For people here, and I'm not talking here primarily about Australia, but PNG again, but other countries too, um, the effect of the pandemic has really been devastating. Setting aside the ravages of COVID itself, uh, these communities who were neglected in some cases even before the pandemic are now in some instances close to full-blown crisis. Uh, In ordinary times, um, many refugees make their living in the informal uh, economy so you add to that the pandemic, the Ukraine crisis, the economic and financial environment we're in, inflation, uh, the difficulties people have on getting their hands to uh, on produce to sell, um, and people lose income, and all the problems uh, follow that. So I do think it's been a very, very, uh, there's never a, a good time to be a refugee, uh, but this has been a particularly tough time, um, and I think that's something from which we do have to draw a lot of lessons as we move forward, all those things you've heard, including that Roshni was speaking about on the importance of refugee-led organizations working with communities, um, uh, the partnerships that are necessary uh, for this, the planning for mainstreaming, and, uh, sorry, the planning, I should say, for the maintenance uh, of refugee services during pan- pandemics, a whole host of measures um, we really have to think carefully about now.
2: Thank you, Adrian. And, um... Thank you for highlighting, I guess, the economic dimension, the economic impact. So that's an excellent segue to my um, next question for Pascal. Um, One of the areas that you work on is building livelihood livelihood opportunities for refugees to promote self-reliance. What impact did the pandemic have for refugees' economic empowerment, and what are the lessons learned?
0: Um, Thank you again, Daniel. Um, During COVID-19, what we observed and experienced in the camp, like is something that also happened everywhere. Businesses were closed, mainly the restaurants. And you found that in the camp, uh, this is part of the, uh, the economic activities that refugees engage in. Uh, and also in Kakuma, we also have business people. They could not access goods because of curfews. Um, at a certain point of the time, like at 6 p.m., vehicles could not move. So. Uh, that restriction, that curfew also affected access to goods and many had to see their businesses declining. Um, and, and, and part of what I do within the organization, there's some products that we used to get from Europe, we could not get them because there's no way they could come. And that also affected the way uh, our economic activity moves. And also, there also have been refugees refugees in the camp, they have relatives outside of the camp, they have relatives um, in Europe, in America, in Canada, then we experienced a low flow of remittances being sent to them because they normally get support from their family members, but this could not happen as well because they were also their relatives were also affected in the countries where they, they were resettled too. Um, and also loss of jobs, some lost their jobs, they could no longer provide for, for their families. So over to you, Daniel, that is what we experienced. Thank you so
2: much, Pascal. And um, can I just encourage everyone in the audience to keep the questions coming in the Q&A? And uh, Pascal, I just want to put one of the, the questions to you again. There's, there's been a couple of uh, people in the audience asking about how uh, refugee-led organizations are funded and uh, how this can be improved to support effective responses.
0: Um, what has been there, because earlier on, the visibility was not there and that recognition has not been there. But currently, because of COVID, it is now strongly coming out because we've been out there asking for support. Uh, um, we have like uh, people of goodwill, individuals can reach out to refugee-led organizations and also fund them using their bank accounts. Some refugees have bank accounts. The organizations and also other organizations normally used to partner with the refugees so that they help them grow and through that partnership the partner can also fundraise uh like you find you have a partner in Europe you have a partner in Canada in US the partner fundraises from there and then also channels the the funds to the refugee led organizations to run or implement a program that they want to work on together so that those those are the the ways in which people can, can, uh, can, can fund the med organization.
2: Thanks so much, Pascal. Roshni, turning back to you, um, you mentioned earlier in your remarks the move towards RSD being conducted virtually in India. And um, I wanted to get your thoughts on the risks and benefits, benefits of this practice continuing going forward.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Um, I think remote RSD was done in a couple of jurisdictions, including Egypt, Libya, and India. Um, maybe Malaysia, I'm not sure. Um, I think it was uh, what we needed at that time, which was during the pandemic when there's absolutely no access and people couldn't even get their, uh, you know, asylum cards renewed um, or couldn't like, you know, highlight the protection issues or like emergency, uh, you know, protection needs. I think it was absolutely essential at that time, and we were glad that UNHCR uh, came up with the guidelines. Uh, I think within a few months into the pandemic, um, and that definitely helped in making sure at least the most vulnerable within the community were able to access um, some of these systems. Um, that being said, I, um, having done RSD myself, I feel, um, it, for me, it sort of goes against the very grain of a humanitarian process, uh, a remote RSD. Uh, it can supplement um, uh, you know, and, uh, a physical RSD process, um, but I don't see it as a substitute. Uh, and the reason for that is, uh, if you look at it from a credibility lens, uh, it's very difficult to verify who the applicant is um it is very difficult to pick up on verbal non verbal cues which is which is in a humanitarian process that's critical to you know corroborate to find out um, you know whether you believe the applicant or not. Uh, and that plays such an in- integral part of a refugee uh, status determination process. Um, and it's not possible for you to know whether the refugee has other people in the room, whether they've been coached or not. So that is strictly from a credibility lens. If you look at it from a humanitarian lens, I don't see it as a safe space. Uh, for refugees, especially those who are most vulnerable. So I I, I don't see how you can have a person who's already traumatized uh, being able to talk through a screen. Um, The RSD officer cannot even reach you. Uh, Most of the times the interpreters don't have their uh, cameras on because of poor digital infrastructure. Uh, And the interpreter is the person the refugee relates to the most because they're from their community um, and they make the process a little less clinical. Uh, and you can't see them, so I I find uh, I I see a lot of challenges uh, in the remote RST process, um, and I think in terms of logistics, I haven't seen a reduction in timelines. For example, we see a lot more complementary interviews taking place in the remote RST because there are one is there are lots of infrastructure challenges. Um, and B, because you don't have the client coming for six hours or like you know, uh, or for a long duration of time, you need to do multiple interviews. So we've not necessarily seen this translate into faster decisions or like re- reduction in uh, backlogs when it comes to RSD. Um, so, I mean, I was just going through the UNHCR's procedural standards the other day to compare how, you know, whether we're able to satisfy those criteria or not. And frankly, on a remote RSD, we're not able to. We're not able to meet those credibility standards. We're not able to meet the basic hum- uh, humanitarian standards. So, I remain a little skeptical about um, this as a continuing process. I see it as a great supplementary process to, um, to a physical RSD.
2: Thank you, Roshni. And I might turn to you. Would I provide any uh, reflections on that remote RSC
4: question? Yeah, I, I think I found that very interesting. And I, I would agree with much of what Roshni was just saying there. Um, I, I guess you can say, in some ways, a, a positive aspect of the pandemic is that we, um, that applies to refugee protection too, is that we've been able to adapt to remote working arrangements up to a point. Um, uh, you know, here in the office that I work in, uh we've had a bit of experience of that even before the pandemic, uh, working with refugees on Nauru, who we have no physical access to. Uh, that's not been possible for a number of years. And in PNG at times, too, uh, we've had to sort of uh, uh, re- uh, work through remote arrangements. Um, so there's some experience with that. And as we all know, you can get quite a bit out of uh, remote working, but you don't get everything. Uh, and that's the problem. Um, the uh, in-person interaction really does matter. In um, It's not just a, a thing that's nice uh, to have, but if you look at uh, situations that often come up um, and where there are real protection risks, uh, for example, GBV cases, uh, um, uh, uh, children at risk, uh, others, uh, really you can't substitute for in-person uh, engagement with that. Um, these are things where you really need to be there uh, as well. Um, I think somewhat positively uh, in, here in in the Pacific. Um, uh, we were fortunate in that all countries and territories provided access to the COVID vaccine for refugees and asylum seekers, and and this was done without discrimination. So this side of things uh, was, I think, was very encouraging. Um, uh, it's something that uh, I think many of us have advocated for throughout the pandemic uh, for refugees. Uh, uh, and asylum seekers to be included in national vaccination programs um, for them and for the community and we saw quite a a good response to that so i think that side of things was was quite well but the the uh, is if there's one element it comes back to a word that um, uh, 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 Gillian used earlier which is inclusion i saw uh, if many of the audience would have seen uh, in the news today and this week, We've now reached eight billion uh, human beings on this planet. Uh, refugees amount to um, and displaced people um, amount in total, and many of those are internally displaced. But nonetheless, they amount in total to more than a hundred million uh, people uh, today. Uh, we cannot; it's completely unsustainable or, or 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 inexcusable to to go on thinking that we can have people on the peripheries of society. So I think the values behind. Um, the Global Compact on Refugees, the emphasis on the all-of-society approach and the inclusion. This, this isn't just jargon, this really does matter, and I think the pandemic has proven that more than ever.
2: Thank you, Adrian. Um, I might turn to a question from, from the audience now. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, groups of, um, certain groups of um, asylum seekers with um, particular characteristics and needs, Adrian. And uh, the question from the audience relates to um, how we can better assist LGBTIQ plus refugees understanding this cohort faces um, double persecution on account of their sexuality and gender identity, um, citing cases of attacks on queer refugees in Kakuma and also war and and or natural disasters.
4: I think it's absolutely important to maintain um, that focus. Uh, if we know that a pandemic makes vulnerable groups even more vulnerable, um, then I think it's doubly important we watch out for the signs of that and have uh, you know, a real acute awareness of that. And that comes back to the point I was making earlier about there has to be thinking for future pandemics, for what happens next, about how do we maintain that focus on those who are most vulnerable and, uh, and, and see what, we, what can be done to help. We saw the impact on resettlement during this pandemic, which has been dramatic. And you know, that deprives many people of a vital uh, lifeline uh, to help. But I think it is a piece of work we have to do. Um, uh, uh, as I said, if we know people are vulnerable, how do we focus on those most at risk and start from there?
2: Thanks, Adrian. And um, you know, you, you mentioned resettlement, and it's not something that we have discussed much yet on this panel in terms of the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic um, has had. Could you provide some brief reflections on the future in that regard, and whether you can see uh, resettlement bouncing back to pre-pandemic levels or beyond?
4: Yeah, well, I think we're seeing some encouraging signs there. But uh, as Jane mentioned, that the problem is that globally, there's a vast there's vastly more needs for resettlement than there are resettlement places available. UNHCR's estimate is that next year we'll need two million um, uh, places globally. Now, if I think back to 2020, and I'm trying to remember the numbers, but um, uh, we had, I, I think uh, fewer than um, fewer than thirty thousand people uh, resettled. So just do the math there. You can see, you know, if you have um, a million and a half people globally needing resettlement, that's going to take a long, long time, I think. Uh, 40 years or so at that kind of rate. Um, So it has had a big impact on resettlement. What we're seeing, um, and this is partly, I think the political environment's changing in some countries, as well as um, uh, as we're moving out of the more acute phase of the pandemic, uh, hopefully. um, uh, We are seeing in the US and elsewhere um, uh, pledges towards numbers going up. We're seeing in Australia pledges of uh, resettlement places going up as well. And I think those have to be encouraged and uh, probably couldn't come fast enough for many people who really do need uh, that kind of help.
2: Thank you, Adrian. Uh, I'm going to move on now to a question that's directed um, to all the panelists. And so uh, uh, ideally, each provide a response in turn, um, which is tying directly with the conference theme on turning points. Um, to what extent was the pandemic a turning point in your context? And what are the key lessons that you want to highlight that have not already been covered? Um, and Pascal, we might start with you if that's okay.
0: Um, I think the, the turning point uh, from the uh, experience COVID-19 is that after now COVID-19, our refugees have strongly come together. Like now in Kenya, we have a refugee network that covers all refugee-led organizations within the country. And we are becoming strongly vocal so that we get that meaningful refugee participation. Um, We get also like funds advocating for funds to refugee-led organizations. And I think this has come strongly because refugees find themselves in a situation whereby during COVID-19, they are the only one to support their own communities and then We have to find a way to get more uh, doors and channels so that if anything happens, we are ready to serve the community. Uh, Something else maybe that we've not learned in this session is that um, refugee, I mean, the local refugee researchers were invisible before COVID-19. But now during COVID-19, local refugee researchers became more visible because researchers could not travel to the camp. Uh, research institutions could not uh, travel to the camp. And then they had to link up with local refugee researchers so that they can produce knowledge. And uh, this was a turning point because before COVID-19, local refugee researchers were like just mobilizers, people to take the researchers to the venue. Uh, But now with COVID-19 or during COVID-19, local refugee researchers uh, were also involved in the research design dissemination process and also the pay was quite fair because there was that recognition of their input in the research uh, activity. So that is what I can bring across uh, in this discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pascal. Um, Moving on to Roshni.
1: Uh, thank you Daniel. I think for us we pre-pandemic we've been talking about uh, solutions to you know strengthen protection in in various countries and we've heard of refugee led organizations in theory but I think this is a period when we were able to test it out. We've talked about digitization, uh we we've, we've had the opportunity to see what works and what doesn't work and I'll just I'll just share that. So, in terms of digitize, uh, uh, digitization, like I said, I think it's been tremendous in terms of ensuring representation, um, and we see more refugee participation in, in forums like this. Uh, and I think that's uh, commendable. Uh, at the same time, I feel we need to be cognizant of the fact that 74% of uh, forced migrants live in low income dev- or like middle income countries. Uh, and th- some of these solutions don't work for, for those regions, and the majority of them are there so with digitiz- uh, digitization like i said we need to look at um, you know we also need to work on digital infrastructure for refugees within the settlements that they operate in we need advocacy to make sure that uh, you know they're able to fulfill basic KYC requirements to uh, you know to have a smartphone to start with um, and so uh, so what i mean to say is that we have these sort of global solutions but they may not they may have to be tailored for uh, specific regions with community led uh, organizations or refugee led organizations again i, I feel we we saw what it could do and i think it can it's a very resilient network and i think it can address issues which are uh, you know of immediate importance but i think to put the burden on long term solutions on these organizations is probably not the way to go because um, there's only so much that these uh, communities can do in countries which are hostile to them, in countries which are not recognizing them legally or giving them documentation. Some of them don't even have bank accounts. So while we're talking about how do we fund them, let's talk about even if you have funding, how are they even going to take this funding? How are they going to report on this funding to their governments? Uh, And there's a lot of suspicion on refugee-led organizations in some of these jurisdictions. So while we're talking about larger global solutions, I think it's important to take the grassroots perspective and live realities of... Uh, refugees and the service providers um, uh, who are functioning within these landscapes. Um, and I completely agree with Adrian. I think we it will be a pity if after going through what we have as a race over the last three years, we've seen conflicts, we've seen a global pandemic, um, and we've seen climate change. Um, if we go back to our ways again, um, without preparing for what's going to come next, um, I think that would be a shame. So I think as, uh, as a community collectively, we need to look for solutions, which you know, we, we, we need to have long-term solutions and views uh, for maybe the next 10, 20 years and not just be reactionary. And that, I feel that's exactly what we did in the last three years. We literally reacted to whatever was thrown our way.
2: Thank you. Thank you, And um, Sadly, our time is coming to an end and we've already gone over by a couple of minutes, but um, I'll turn to Adrian for, for the final word. Thank
4: you so much. Uh, I think there's so many things uh, that we have learned, and in many ways, there's multiple, I suppose, turning points that have happened along the way. Um, what we have seen is this organic evolution over the period of the pandemic, I think, which may have been tied to other factors too, um, uh, uh, that I think is is very, very interesting and points away to the future. I've mentioned the, and we've discussed uh, in the meeting, the the growth and, and the impact of refugee-led organizations, community groups, people are close. Um, uh, that has really been something, I think, remarkable uh, over this uh, period. Um, the way that, that I, I suppose the world works with refugees, uh, I think, is evolving. I like to think there's some sort of positivity um, in what we've learned. The remote working practices, uh, I think, has been, been useful there. But we need to keep moving this thing towards inclusion. We should be talking about, when we talk about refugees, uh, ultimately we're talking about ourselves because we're all humans. And I think keeping that sort of process uh, going uh, so we keep the focus on inclusion is going to be uh, vitally important. And I, I won't, I'll, I'll maybe stop there because I'm going to advertise the Global Compact on refugees again. But I think that really provides a, a, a great framework for continuing this, uh, what we've learned and this work. Thank <music> you.